0: Hello and welcome to IHBC at COP26. Conserving buildings and places conserves our planet. Today we are joined by Lori Ferris. Lori is the Director of Sustainability and Climate Action at Goody Clancy and a champion for preservation of built heritage as a key measure towards meeting climate mitigation goals. Her professional practice as an architect, structural engineer, and conservator combines broad policy development with deep technical insights to promote a culturally and environmentally sustainable world through design. She is active locally and globally through her roles on the American Institute of Architects Committee on the Environment Leadership Group, the ICOMOS International Scientific Committee on Energy, Sustainability, and Climate Change, and as a co-chair of the Zero-Net Carbon Collaboration for Existing and Historic Buildings. Well, welcome Laurie, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So can we start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself, how you got started and why you're passionate about sustainability and conservation?
1: Sure, so I think uh, my passion for sustainability and conservation and really for the concept of stewardship in general was ingrained in me from a very young age. Um, I grew up in Southern Louisiana, which is one of the earliest European settled parts of the United States. Um, which has a very strong French Cajun culture to it. Um, And uh, so there's sort of this very um, lovely cultural component to the the identity of that region. Um, And at the same time, they've always throughout, I think history grappled with the Mississippi River and the sort of natural environmental influences on their civilization there. Um, so I grew up with this understanding because it's just taught to you both socially and um, academically. It's it, you you learn about how the environment and how history impacts the way you live today. Um, and I think that really, you know, sunk in. <laughs> and I've always been interested with those relationships, um, both the relationship with, with our current culture to our past and the relationship between our current culture and how it's responsive to the natural environment in which it sits. And that kind of led me to to study uh, architectural history and and, um, building technology and kind of these intersections of how buildings work and um, how they work now, how they worked in the past and how we can keep them relevant into the future.
0: That's really fantastic. Talking about your um, project work a little bit. I I know you do work for large institutional clients, which I think is really interesting to hear about uh, sort of large buildings, campuses, that sort of thing so, as you uh, are designing for your project work, whether that's you know new build or maybe you're doing a new addition or or renovating existing buildings, how do you go about emphasizing sort of carbon reduction solutions through design?
1: yeah that's a really interesting question, and I think the answer varies depending on the client because um in my experience, most well most of the the buildings that we work on for particularly higher education clients. Um, are very multifaceted. There are many stakeholders that make up these owner groups, and overall, carbon is not their primary concern. There, you know, there are constraints around finances and schedule and, pers- you know, public perception and all of these other factors. And so, I think the most effective way to really bring carbon into the picture is actually to tie it to the co-benefits it has with these other, um, with all these other things. For example, how can you, how can reducing carbon also reduce cost? How can it tie into what their student bodies really care about, um, going to to climate action and particularly time back to climate action planning. Um, how can you know? How can they talk about it and present it in a way that's that people can learn from, that they are seen, you know, that they can be leaders within their peer group. Um, how can it tie to resilience? That's a big one, particularly now where owners are actually starting to see the impacts of climate change on their buildings' operations. And on the people within the buildings, um, how can carbon reduction strategies tie to helping their buildings perform better going into the future? Um, so I, I think it's it's really kind of a communications game.
0: <laughs> right. OK. And, and do you find uh, do you find an acceptance from clients to sort of look maybe longer term in their horizons as far as sort of paybacks, you know, carbon paybacks, um, maybe a little bit more money in the near term, but but benefits long term?
1: Yeah, I think um, we're, we're lucky actually to work with higher education institutions because they do typically own their buildings for a very long time. So they are invested in seeing them perform well over time. Um, and so if you can show them, I think they're, they are willing to make a higher investment upfront uh, if it leads to energy savings or cost savings over time or helps them reach a carbon neutrality target or uh, is easier to maintain. You know, I think there are a lot, of, a lot of reasons why people will invest more upfront. And with existing buildings, I think one thing we found that's interesting is helping people realize the win win opportunities um, around, particularly around deferred maintenance, where something as simple as, um, you know, re uh, sealing windows and uh, improving air tightness of a facade and repairing masonry can both be, you know, it can help them shuffle deferred maintenance off of their list, but it can also improve their energy use and reduce their costs over time and help their building um, be more durable over time
0: yeah absolutely it makes makes sense. Um, I guess I'd like to come back uh, in a moment to to dig in a little bit more about how you might sort of calculate some of these savings. but first, I wanted to talk about policy because I understand you're involved in some policy development as well. So could you tell us uh, what your work around this area uh, is about? I mean, I mean I, I know you're working on sort of ingraining carbon and climate accounting into, into thinking, but, but how do you sort of from a policy standpoint sort of incentivize these things?
1: Yeah, so I'm uh I think policy exists at so many different levels right so um, I am involved in policy for different um, for different groups so on one hand looking at carbon policies for campuses so climate action planning and uh, carbon neutrality planning and then on the city side looking at how the city of Boston in particular and other municipalities can implement carbon uh, the carbon policies and so I guess I'll, I'll start with the campuses going back from that work I think one of One of the challenges with getting clients to prioritize carbon is that it needs, they really need it to be explicitly called out in their policies in order to make the case for decision-making around that factor, right? So um, while climate action planning is becoming much more common, and I think is starting to have more teeth, uh, just particularly in the United States um, we've seen, we're still only looking at operational carbon typically with these plans. And so particularly when you're trying to make the case for building reuse where the benefit is through the avoided emissions of reusing what we already have rather than building new, uh, if there's no policy around embodied carbon, if there if if no one has to track or pay the price for the carbon emissions resulting from the materials and the construction of a new building, then there's no reason to make a t- decision around that carbon um, or to, you know, to there's no uh, incentive to value the existing building for its embodied carbon. Um, so that's one thing we've been working on is it's really a lot of education and a lot of helping people to think about the metrics and how they can be easily introduced um, one case study we've been partnering with a college in outside of Atlanta Georgia to try and quantify the carbon benefits of their stewardship philosophy um, and this campus is part of a historic district it's they have a really um, wonderful ethos around stewardship that has to do with the environment and their culture and the, the social systems on their campus Um, and they've never been able to really put a number on that. So that's what we're helping them to do, to look back over time and say, over the, you know, greater than century of this campus's existence, you've avoided X carbon emissions, you know, equal, which is equaling a huge number, um, you know, equivalent to growing a forest on their campus for hundreds of years to, you know, that just reusing their buildings through making that decision and choosing to reinvest time and time again, as you know, as that decision comes up. And then looking into the future, helping them to incorporate these findings into their carbon neutrality plan so that they are actually thinking holistically about carbon emissions and capitalizing on the benefits of preservation or conservation on their campus.
0: Um, Yeah, that's amazing. So so you talked about sort of quantifying those numbers. Uh, I know a lot of times it can be difficult to quantify the numbers. Can you talk a little bit about the tools that you use? And I know that also you've been involved in developing a tool, so you can uh, tell us a little bit about that if you would.
1: Sure. So the tool, I guess at a high level, um, life cycle assessment is the the conceptual tool that we use to quantify life cycle carbon emissions. Um, And what that does is really just expand our aperture from not just looking at use phase emissions, which are from the energy use to operate, heat, cool, light, a building, but really expanding that view all the way from extraction of materials, construction uh, through end of life demolition, et cetera. And um, so there are a lot of tools available to do this. We have been incorporating life cycle assessment into our work um, to really start to put a number on the carbon benefits of, of reuse and of conservation. Um, and uh, But the problem with life cycle assessment is that it's a quite a detailed process. And so to perform a, a full life cycle assessment, you really need to know a lot about the building. You need to know all of the material quantities that are going into it. You need to know a lot about its location. Um, and so there are, you kind of have to be at the end of a project and you have to be a fairly knowledgeable professional to perform the calculation. Um, So the tool that I've been working on with uh, Larry Strain of SQL and Strain Architects out in the the San Francisco area um, and Aaron McDade from Architecture 2030 is called CARE, the Carbon Avoided Retrofit Estimator. And this tool is meant to be used early in design or before design by policymakers, by building owners, um, by advocates, by design professionals, really by anyone. Um, and it takes this life cycle approach but it uses standardized data that's it's pretty high level it's not extremely precise but it is accurate enough to allow you to evaluate the carbon impacts of doing nothing to it to an existing building of retrofitting it um making certain upgrades to it improving its energy performance and then the third scenario is replacing it with new construction and so that the point of the tool is that uh you know if an owner comes to you for example and says i'd really like to understand um how reusing this built this existing building contributes to my carbon neutrality targets or my carbon mitigation targets because I really just want to build new I want to build new net zero but someone's you know what happens if I demolish this building and so this tool allows you to get a snapshot and to see that almost always reusing an existing building if you can upgrade its energy performance is the better carbon choice um and I want to emphasize that that is particularly within the context of our our the urgency of climate action that because we're not looking at Carbon payback over an entire building life cycle. What we really care about are carbon emissions within the next ten to fifteen years. Um, and so, when you kind of narrow your window to that time frame, the embodied emissions, those upfront emissions, matter so much more than operational emissions. So, building reuse is just you know it hugely capitalizes on the exist on on avoiding emissions from new construction within the critical near term.
0: Right. That's amazing. So, so that's sort of an early sort of an early phase tool. So, is it something that an owner? Could use a sophisticated owner, or is it more targeted that they're sort of architects early on?
1: Yeah, it's it's absolutely targeted towards owners, policymakers, um, people who don't necessarily have training, technical training in architecture. It's very simple. It's a series of drop-down menus. You enter the size of the building, where it's located, and then you can uh, tell tell us a little bit about the renovation. So you input into the tools, sort of are you upgrading the mechanical systems? Are you renovating the interior and to what extent? And you can kind of—it's very quick to toggle these options. You can actually play with it to understand the carbon impacts of different choices. Um, But the idea is that you don't need to know a lot technically, and you don't need to know a lot about your specific project, in order for the tool to be effective.
0: Right. Okay. That's great. Is it? um, And and so, are you're in development with the tool, or or can we find it out there and use it, or or where where is Uh, it now? It's in
1: development right now. We're um, we're about to hire a web a web app developer. So it's been in a spreadsheet form so far, um, which works just fine. But I think, you know, once we get it onto the web, then we'll be able to share it out more widely and update it more consistently um, and really kind of link to more data. I think that's one constraint of Excel is just the amount of data that you can fit in there. And so uh, for example, we've been working through the Climate Heritage Network, which I know we'll get to in a few minutes, to look at how the tool can be expanded currently it's only the data within it only covers North America so looking at expanding it to cover other regions of the world and you know once it's on uh, once once it's out of Excel we can sort of easily plug in other back-end data to allow for example the UK people in the UK to use this tool and have data that's regionally specific to them
0: yeah, and that's that's always the tricky part, isn't it? With especially existing buildings and the various building typologies, you know, is it one of these things where you can gain metadata on on buildings as it's used more, and, and gain insights and sort of improve the software as it goes? Or
1: that's a, that's Maybe an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I would love to be able to do that. I suppose it uh, has to do with the permissions that we receive from users as they are using the tool um, to anonymize the data and be able to harvest it but that's a really that's a really good idea because I think that's one of the biggest data challenges around advocating for conservation as climate action is that we just don't have a large a large set a large data set with these numbers Um, we have a few case studies which are impactful but it's not the same as having a database of hundreds of buildings
0: right now, you mentioned uh, the Climate Heritage Network, and uh, I suppose that ties into uh, your participation in the Zero-Net Carbon Collaboration, uh, where right you're looking to sort of break down barriers between silos of practitioners, between sort of more mainstream uh, practitioners and conservationists. Could you tell a little bit about uh, what your goals are there? And
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Zero-Net Carbon Collaboration for Existing and Historic Buildings was founded um, almost exactly four years ago, <laughs> just looking back. It's about the ZNCC's birthday right now. Um, and it was founded at the Association for Preservation Technology International Conference. Um, and the goal was really to bring together mainstream, I'll say quote unquote mainstream design, conservation, and sustainability groups um, to really have this conversation in an integrated way. Uh, so the original founding partners were APT, uh, ECOMOS, the, RAIC, the Royal Institute, Royal, RAIC, Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, <laughs> and oh, yeah. the, the American Institute of Architects and Architecture 2030. And I think the you know, the benefit of this collaboration is that all these groups have such deep technical knowledge and such a wide reach within their own communities that it, we're really able to kind of bring all of these perspectives together to further the conversation of how existing buildings um, and reuse of existing buildings can accelerate climate action.
0: All right. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you very much, Lori. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you what the future looks like or what should it look like uh, in terms of the sustainability and conservation of the built environment.
1: Yeah, what does the future look like? Well, I think um I think everyone understands that we're in a time of rapid change. And there's such an urgency around social issues, around climate action that uh, the field of conservation does have to change. Uh, it just, we can't afford to to stay the same. Um, and our existing buildings and heritage structures can't afford to be stagnant either. I think we're at a place where we have to manage change, not stop it. Um, and, and so I think we really need to claim our seat at the table here as the heritage conservation community. We have deep technical knowledge about um, about historic building materials, about how to use local materials and local labor, about how buildings can adapt over time through different uses, through different climates, um, and we have all of this this knowledge. But rather, you know, rather than use it to stop change or to be seen as naysayers, you know, getting down to the detail of a window, like don't touch my window, we can be seen as people who bring solutions, who who can harness this knowledge to to uh, demonstrate how heritage structures can actually be assets towards climate action. Um, and so I think that's the, the challenge I put forth to this community is to really step up and uh, you know, aggressively integrate into this, this climate conversation so that we can lead in a really positive direction proactively.